for Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 has only been with us for about a year. Still, two different vaccines could be made available in limited quantities within the coming weeks. This is a scientific achievement that will go down in history because before this, the fastest ever developed vaccine took four years. Sarah Overmall, who covers drug development for Politico, joins me to discuss the two vaccines, some of the others in the pipeline, and some of the challenges of rolling them out. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. In recent weeks, drug makers Pfizer and Moderna have asked federal officials to give emergency approval to their COVID-19 vaccines. Making these vaccines so quickly has been a major achievement says Sarah Overmall, who covers drug development for Politico. But she says there's still much we don't know about how these vaccines will work and some major challenges to rolling them out. She's with me now to discuss the latest. Sarah, thanks for talking with me. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So we have seen a lot of positive news about COVID-19 vaccines recently. People may have heard of promising candidates from drug makers Pfizer and Moderna. And maybe it makes the most sense to kind of take these one by one. We'll start with Pfizer. My understanding is they were kind of the first out with big news. Where is Pfizer with their COVID-19 vaccine? Yes. So a lot has happened and a lot of news that was better than people could have guessed. Pfizer, as you said, was the first one to release some of their news in early November, just roughly a week in. And they said that they found their vaccine to be more than 90% effective in this first sort of set of people who they were looking at in these what are called interim analyses. So they're these check-in points that companies will do. And so in their first check-in, they found it to be more than 95% effective. That was extremely promising. We were thinking that the first few coronavirus vaccines were going to be, you know, maybe 60 or 70% effective. The Food and Drug Administration set the bar at 50%. Now that was just the first 
look at the data, but it suggests what the rest of the data will be. And so they submitted to the Food and Drug Administration for an emergency use authorization at the very end of November. That's something that's a bar lower than approval, but it allows the FDA to move faster on getting that out the door and to people like healthcare workers more quickly than an approval process would. And that's underway right now. FDA is going to have a meeting on December 10th to talk about that publicly and for people to air their concerns or ask questions. And then we could expect feasibly an emergency use authorization within days of that, which is like record speed. And that's why people might have heard the kind of date of mid-December when people could potentially start getting at least one of these vaccines into their arms. Another vaccine that has shown promise uh, as of late is a vaccine product from Moderna. They were a little bit behind Pfizer, but actually had pretty similar efficacy results. Very similar results, yes. So they said that theirs was about 95% effective. And Pfizer, it's worth noting, in data that came out a few days after that, said they were also in around the 95% bar. The two vaccines use very similar technology as well, something called an mRNA vaccine. And so there are a lot of similarities between the two. They also require two doses. They're going to have somewhat similar shipping concerns, things like that. But Moderna will be distributed through some government distribution channels, and Pfizer has kind of gone its own way. But the important thing with Moderna, like you said, they were a little bit later than Pfizer on filing. They actually filed with the FDA this week. And so their date for an FDA public meeting of experts to discuss their data, their weaknesses, if there are any, their strengths, that date is December 17th. So if they get their emergency use authorization in, with the same turnaround time that Pfizer could be getting theirs, we could also see their vaccine in December. And so, yes, that's where that mid-December sort of timeframe comes from. It's those two vaccine makers. Each of them has roughly 20 million doses apiece this year. So when we say people could expect something this year, we're talking about a few healthcare workers, not the broad public. And you mentioned that both of these are being considered for emergency use authorization. This is maybe a term that people have heard and they understand it's not the same as regular approval. This is a considerably lower bar that the FDA sets in emergency situations for giving something the green light. Exactly. It's a considerably lower bar and it's an important distinction because an approval is something that is based on piles of data from clinical trials that sometimes will last for years with thousands of patients. Now, these vaccine makers who are submitting for an emergency use authorization are submitting on the data of thousands of patients. The FDA required them to submit at least half of their patients' data for a two-month follow-up. So that's 15,000 apiece because vaccine trials are very, very big. But that's still a much, much lower bar than your typical approval. An emergency use authorization only happens during a public emergency like a coronavirus pandemic. So if for some reason next month this is no longer considered a public emergency, those vaccines technically aren't authorized anymore. Now, we don't expect that to happen, but that's sort of the premise of what they are being given this green light for. And so the FDA has a lot of flexibility with an emergency use authorization. They can essentially say the data that we have for this product looks promising and looks pretty safe. We're going to give this green light. That has raised some concerns among the public, mostly because the way that emergency use authorizations have been used this year so far have been used for some questionable things like hydroxychloroquine, the uh, malaria medicine that did not end up working against the 
coronavirus, despite the president's repeated claims that it would. And so the FDA is very aware of that scrutiny, and they've been trying to very publicly and transparently explain how the EUA would work for these vaccines and why people shouldn't be worrying about them. So these are the two kind of vaccines that are maybe first out in front. But there are researchers all over the world working on other candidates. Are there any others that are of particular interest to you that that you think people might start hearing about soon? Yes, definitely. So there's another one from AstraZeneca and Oxford University that has received a lot of funding from the U.S. government. They have been releasing data recently suggesting that theirs is promising as well. Not as promising as Moderna and Pfizer's, although it's hard to reach that 95% bar, but they could be filing soon. Another really important one that I think a lot of people have their eyes on is one from Johnson & Johnson. What's really important about their potential coronavirus shot is it's just one dose. And from a public health perspective, that's really kind of optimal because if you think about outreach to hard to reach populations, to just have one dose saves you from a lot of potential problems. Beyond that, there's just dozens that are still in development. Other big drug makers like Merck, Novavax, they all are working on other ones. And the expectation is that next year we could have a lot of options. That means millions and millions more people getting dosed each month so that we don't have to wait until next fall for the vast majority of people to be vaccinated. What is your sense from conversations you've had with public officials, public health experts about how many different vaccines we actually need? Just for the U.S., for instance, there's roughly 330 million people. And if you think about how most of these doses, really all of them except for the Johnson & Johnson shot, are going to require two doses, we already need well over 600 million just for the United States, let alone what the rest of the world will need to have. And so public health experts are anticipating that we're going to be, over the next few months, getting 40 million a month in the U.S. That's that's 40 million shots a month. And again, that's probably going to be for 20 million people. And then we're going to start slowly scaling up as more shots get authorized for use. And so the way that they're trying to deal with that, that real bottleneck on supply when there's going to be, of course, massive demand, is they're trying to organize the population into tiers that need it the most because they are at the most high risk for the virus or because they are the riskiest for spreading the virus and then working their way down from there. So if you're a healthy person who doesn't have to have contact with many people throughout the day, someone like a journalist sitting at home, um, you probably are not going to be realistically getting a shot until next summer. But again, we have to keep in mind that the rest of the world needs these too. And everyone's working out these different agreements, the drug makers, countries themselves, to try to equitably distribute these shots. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead, talking today with Sarah Overmall. She covers drugs and vaccines for Politico. We're talking about some of the latest news surrounding the development of vaccines for COVID-19. Who is actually figuring out the priority here for these vaccines? Who gets them first? My understanding is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has this kind of like subgroup that normally kind of puts out recommendations for who gets any kind of vaccine first. But I don't quite know what they do. And I don't quite know who's going to figure this out. Who gets this first? Yeah, it's a complicated process. So like you said, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they have a subgroup. It's an expert panel of some representatives from the government, but then also doctors, state representatives, public health experts. That group's called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. 
in this case, the advisory committee, or as we sometimes call them, ASIP, is discussing what to do about this huge demand on very limited products. So they are the ones who are splitting out these tiers, these really granular tiers where you have, you know, group 1A is healthcare workers. From there, the consensus does break down a little bit, and that's where ASIP's priorities and their guidance comes in. But that's also where states and what they decide to do is going to be really, really important. So ASIP can and will sort of work out these tiers. They actually called an emergency meeting for this afternoon because we are so close to potential vaccines. But at the end of the day, ASIP just provides that guidance. And it's actually states who are going to be making those difficult allotment decisions. So you could be seeing different things across state lines. Sure. And and this is news that will be developing as we're talking. By the time people hear this, this ASIP meeting will be over. We, we might have news out of that. So that's something that just reflects how fast moving this situation is. And you get to something there, Sarah, that I understand is going to be a real challenge here is the kind of power that states have and the responsibility that states are going to have to distribute these vaccines. This doesn't only come down to kind of prioritizing people, but also kind of figuring out the logistics of it. Kind of states are all kind of being left to their own devices to figure out how to ship and distribute these vaccines. Yeah. Yeah, well, a lot of the shipping is is being handed off through the military, actually, through Operation Warp Speed at the federal level. But then, yes, once it's in um, the states themselves, they do have a really, one of my sources described it as a, quote, Herculean task of distributing to their own populations. And just besides the fact that they're going to have a very limited allotment to be giving out to people, they've also got to keep in mind the health disparities that have been disproportionately affecting Black, Latinx, and Native American populations populations during this. And so Black, Latinx, and Native American people have disproportionately been um, sick with the virus, hospitalized with the virus, and killed by it. And so this has been a huge topic for ASIP. It's been a huge topic for states as they're drawing up their plans. And so states are going to have a really, really messy problem on their hands over these next few months. I think that the scrutiny as, as we get more shots out is going to shift from the federal level down to what each state and what each locality is doing. Over the course of our conversation, we've laid out a bunch of different challenges. We have scarcity. We have figuring out what to do with that scarcity. There's logistical challenges here. You know, how do you store this appropriately? How do you get someone back for their second shot? Is there any other kind of larger challenge that you think is really going to complicate the effective, you know, inoculation of a substantial portion of the population with with these vaccines? I'd say confidence in them. There's been historical skepticism of the medical establishment from communities of color, as we we were talking about a bit earlier. But then also there's been eroding confidence in vaccines broadly across different groups. And that has not been helped by the president and some of his administration. President Trump has repeatedly openly pressured FDA to speed up its review of coronavirus vaccines. He said multiple times before the election that he would have a vaccine ready for people before November 3rd. Then when that was no longer a possibility, he accused career scientists of holding back. So when you already have fragile confidence in vaccines and you add on these political 
games. And I should I should add, too, it's not just him. President-elect Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris said in debates and things that they wouldn't trust a vaccine that came from the Trump administration. Basically, the political rhetoric around this has just further eroded public confidence. We've seen poll numbers from people who say that they simply don't trust this or that they don't think that they need it. And so there's going to have to be a massive public outreach campaign that I think Every state is going to have to look at its own population and say, what's the best way for us to do this? Who who can deliver this message well? And a lot of states are trying to employ local community leaders, church leaders, things like that, to try to get through to people. But I think that's going to be really one of the most major tasks ahead. A lot of people have really talked about the remarkable pace at which this whole process has played out. It was less than a year ago that scientists sequenced the genome for this novel virus. And here we are. We're talking about getting vaccines into people's arms. Is there any one entity that can really take credit for the speed with which this has happened? We've mentioned Operation Warp Speed, the Trump administration effort to fast track the vaccine. Do they get the credit? Is it independent scientists? How do you think about that? It's sort of an all of the above and then some. (laughs) This is a scientific achievement that will go down in history because before this, the fastest ever developed vaccine took four years. And so when you think about how quickly they moved on this, a few really key things happened in the first few weeks of the pandemic. Chinese regulators shared the genome of the virus very quickly. They uploaded it onto an international database that meant that many different universities and companies could access it immediately and start working on their vaccine. So that was a really, really important part of it. All these universities and companies and government institutions jumping quickly to work on that, to fund each other, to work in partnership. Um, And then something important happened at the U.S. regulatory level that I think helped uh, speed things along worldwide. The FDA specifically uh, bended some of the rules for animal studies so that animal studies could be conducted at the same time as human studies. It meant that vaccines started going into phase one, which is the phase where you only dose you know, a few dozen people. You're literally just looking for whether it's safe. They started doing that in spring, which had never happened before at this type of speed. And so I think that all those things combined, and then of course, Operation Warp Speed, their achievement was more they helped fund vaccine makers to start manufacturing at massive levels so that once they get their authority, they can start churning those out. All those things combined mean that we could potentially have doses in people's arms in December, less than a year after we started talking about this, which really is a landmark achievement. This has been a a remarkable achievement, but there's also still a bunch of ways that this can go wrong. So How should people think about this? I mean, should people be more worried that these obstacles are going to be too hard to overcome or should people be optimistic about this? It's just this is something I wonder personally about. We've we've had so much good news, um, but there's still so many challenges ahead. Absolutely. I think I think two of the things that stay top of mind for me in terms of what could go wrong is. One, we don't know yet how long immunity lasts. We are going to potentially be putting these into people's arms with just mm, about four months of immunity tracking on people. So we could find out that these are kind of like the flu vaccine where they become an annual staple for us. Or we could find out that they're like polio and that we've eradicated this disease, but we just don't know yet. So that's one thing. We could find out that they're not as effective and that could really 
contribute to eroding that already fragile confidence in vaccines. The other one, and this is something that they've spoken about at the ACIP meetings, this is something that federal and state officials are thinking about a lot, is just the potential side effects. And if people understand yet that those are going to exist and that it means it's working, it doesn't mean you should be worried about it. So for instance, the Pfizer vaccine has caused arm aches, sometimes even fevers. And so helping people to understand that's not something that you should be worried about, but also if those side effects mean that these vaccines shouldn't be used for certain populations. So for instance, senior citizens who are in long-term care facilities are most vulnerable to this virus, but is their immune system, which is already weakened, ready for these shots? That's something that they're talking about at ASIP actually this afternoon to decide whether they should be in that first priority group. So I think that that's another thing that we're going to have to sort of flesh out in these next few weeks. And the clock is ticking. I mean, we've got to make these decisions right now because we're going to have these shots very soon. Sarah Overmall covers drug and vaccine development for Politico. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate, and thanks.